Welcome and thank you for joining us for the NAHU Healthcare Happy Hour, the official podcast of the National Association of Health Underwriters. Before we begin, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify. The podcast is distributed on these platforms every Friday and is included in the NAHU's weekly member-exclusive health policy newsletter, The Washington Update, giving you a head start on your weekly healthcare happy hour. Good afternoon, folks, and welcome back to the Healthcare Happy Hour. Today, we are joined by a very special guest, Thomas J. McInerney, President and CEO of Genworth Financial, a leading company in the long-term care and mortgage insurance industries. If you work in the long-term care space, you know Genworth and the role that they have played in the industry. On this week's episode of the Healthcare Happy Hour, members of NAHU's long-term care advisory group, Noel Evans and Lori Martin, sit down with Tom McInerney for an in-depth discussion on what drew Tom to Genworth and long-term care, new Genworth products, a recent cost-of-care survey, and much, much more. So, Tom, we can go online and read your resume, your CV. Can you tell us something non-business related that we don't know about you? Well, you know, Noel, we had a diversity, equity, inclusion uh, worldwide broadcast uh, at Genworth a few weeks ago. And one of the things I said, because I, I was asked that question, and surprised, I think, people. And so I said, uh, I'm very lucky. I'm blessed to have three sisters, three daughters, and three granddaughters. Oh, wow. So I'm a, a big wow. advocate for women doing well in business or any aspect of life, given the three groups of girls and women that are a big part of my family. That's great. And Tom, with your strong background in healthcare, what drew you to long-term care insurance? So I'll go back a little bit further, Noel, and talk to you about when I entered the insurance industry. So this June 5th of 2022, I'll have been here for 44 years. Wow. And I got into insurance in an unusual way. I, I knew when I graduated uh, from college in 1978 that I wanted to go get an MBA at some point. And back then the rules were to get into the good schools. And I ended up going to the Tuck School at Dartmouth. You needed two years of work. So recognizing that you know, I was on my own to pay for it, I wanted the highest paying job where I could live at home from Rome, New York. So my first job was at Aetna, large multi-line global insurer. I started in 1978 in the Syracuse branch office. Uh, and then I did leave after two years, got an MBA, and then came back and spent more than two decades at Aetna and then went on to ING and then I've been at Genworth for the last uh, nine and a half years. So I, I never really expected to be in insurance for 44 years. I would say that I am very financial analytical and the complexity of the financial analysis, the actuarial analysis, the complexity of risk management, matching assets, liabilities. So I, I really stayed in part because I found the disciplines in the insurance business to be very complex and interesting. But then second, it became very apparent early on that one of the things that we're doing for society and for people, both businesses and individuals, is we pay claims. And I can't tell you how many times over the years, whether it was a house burned down, you know, a tornado, hurricane destroyed a whole part of a town, 
and then moving it, you know, as you said, and healthcare, because I, I did run out this health business in the 90s, paying, you know, significant claims in the medical space that would wipe out a family without insurance, I think, brings you to know that we really do significantly contribute to society. And long-term care insurance, we're, we're dealing with elderly Americans who are generally reliant on their own. Some have long-term care insurance, but as you know, most don't. And so again, I, I can't tell you how rewarding it is when there is a, a parent, grandparent that has severe dementia or has Alzheimer's, needs care for a long time in a facility, very expensive, over $100,000 a year uh, and growing. So to be able to take that financial burden off families, it's, uh, it's really rewarding. So at the end of the day, I think giving back to older Americans and helping them and their families get through these challenges as they age you know, is what I like best about my job and, and our focus at Genworth on long-term care insurance. Oh, that's great, Tom. I think, you know, giving back is so important. And, and, you know, it's just, it's a real feel good moment when those claims are paid and those those individuals are helped with their long-term care events. So the Genworth long-term care story for the past several years has mostly been about multi-year rate action plans on the legacy book of long-term care business. But over the past few quarters, you've started to share some high-level plans for long-term care growth initiatives. So again, why return to the long-term care market when so many others have left? So Laura, that's a great question. I get asked that a lot by our board members and our shareholders. But the first thing I would say is the legacy long-term care insurance model, I think was wrong. Uh, One thing that surprised me when I came to Genworth was how rare it was for companies like Genworth or other LTC insurers to go for rate increases. That surprised me because, again, having run, told you that I ran at this health business in the 90s, we would mm-hmm. go for premium increases, sometimes double digit, years in a row, and there was never any question about that. And so in long-term care insurance, you were taking these long-term health risks for 30 or 40 years, and the model was set up by the insurance companies as well as regulators that we priced the policy up front And we tried never to raise premiums, keep them level. And there are some reasons for that. But from a risk perspective, it just can't work. No matter how conservative your assumptions are up front, the likelihood that they will hold for 30 or 40 years is pretty pretty low. And -hmm. that's what happened in all the legacy policies. We have 1 million legacy LTC policies. And so the multi-year rate action plan, we call it the MIRAP, it's really been about fixing the legacy book. And we're I've been here nine and a half years. We're about two thirds of the way through. I think it's probably another five years before. And we're just trying to get to break even, which means given our reserves and the capital we have in our life companies and all the premiums, both the originally priced for premiums and the new premiums, it's enough to pay all the claims in the future. So it's been a a challenge. It's taken a while. Right. Uh, I know there's some questions later on about the regulatory environment. But regulators have really been willing to step up. It's, it's not all consistent across states, but they like to do these over a period of time. So it, it's taking time. But I still believe there's a great societal need for a robust, competitive, private long-term care insurance market. There's a, a lot of demand, limited supply. We've gone from over 100 long-term care insurance companies to maybe 10. So I think the economics are strong going forward. I think there's some chance 
that over the next 30 or 40 years, because you issue a policy to somebody usually 55 to 60, they claim usually in their 80s. I mean, they can claim at any time, but it's usually in the 80s. So over that period of time, three decades or more, society changes in major ways. Costs change, inflation, the way people get, get care, their care, right? Med- medical innovation that may help or, or not help in, in this area. You just can't predict that. What I have been saying to regulators, and I think they're on board with it generally, is we're going to price it up front conservatively. We hope we never have to change premiums, but who knows over 30, 40 years what's going to happen. And so we want to do an annual review, actuarial review, financial review. We'll submit that to all the states where we write business. And the view is if the pricing assumptions are holding, they're consistent with reality, then we won't change. But because none of us know that, none of us know what's going to happen over 30, 40 years on all the risk criteria, you have to be able to, when you see that the real world, uh, whether it's costs or investment returns on premiums that you're holding for 30 years, whatever may be that changes, as soon as you see that change, the sooner you intervene, the amount of increase that you need is much lower because you're intervening earlier to fix the problem and you collect that premium for longer. I think it's better for regulators. It's better for insurance companies like Genworth. And it's ultimately better for consumers because over and over again, as you can imagine, I've had a lot of conversations, hundreds with policyholders angry about a premium increase. But when you walk through it with them, they understand. And when I ask them, would you like going forward a system where you're subject to not a lot of increases, but then they can be very large near the end when you're older? Or would you like it like most insurance adjusted along the way, if need be, again, with the hope that we won't have to change premiums and unanimous that that consumers would prefer that. So I therefore believe we have to fix the legacy book. We're doing that. It's taking longer than yeah we'd, we'd like, but we're making progress. But I think the future need is there. And I think going with an annual review to make sure that the assumptions are holding, I, I think will avoid a lot of the significant problems. Yeah. And consumers are used to annual reviews on their medical insurance. Correct. You know, that's something that they're medical that insurance, they see. auto insurance, auto insurance, insurance. Exactly. Right. That was great insight. Thank you. And I can just second that from my time at Genworth. I'm talking to policyholders today. And when they call me about the rate increases, you know, initially, they're not very happy. But once I walk them through it, they get it. You know, Tom, a lot of our NAHU members don't know the LTC regulatory environment. Can you help us understand this in terms of new products and rate increases on the existing products and other carrier challenges? Sure. As, as you know, it's a big issue. The first thing I would say is insurance is regulated by all 50 states and the District of Columbia and a few other territories. So it's 50 plus constituents, regulators. And unfortunately, they all have their own idea as to the right way to do it. And so it's, it's been a major challenge on receiving these premium increases because I'll take one of our larger policy forms, what we call Choice One. It's our second largest form. It's policy sold in the 1995, the 2003 period. But the state with the lowest increase is about 45%. And the state with 
a full increase is more in the 450% range. And so wow. that's really a, a problem because there's a lot of cross-subsidization going on between policyholders in different states. So that's mm-hmm. been a big problem. There was a NAIC LTC task force. There's almost 45 commissioners on it. And they're trying to make it work. So there's a more consistent methodology and rate increases are reviewed under that methodology and given on a reasonably prompt basis. But it's a challenge because in the end, commissioners and state insurance departments like their ultimate flexibility and autonomy to do what they think is right in their state. So that's a big challenge. And so I would like to see a more uniform system where the NAIC, you know, which oversees all the, the states or all the commissioners are part of that, that they come up with a more consistent methodology to approve new products. And if there needs to be a change in rates, that they do it on a more consistent basis. But as you can imagine, if you want to call each, each insurance department your ultimate approver, it's complicated. So over the years, Genworth has been just a tremendous leader in providing long-term care insurance education to the public. You recently released your 18th cost of care survey in February to the industry and consumers, and that highlights the continued increase in the cost of a long-term care event over time, especially the cost for skilled nursing facility care. So what trends are you seeing in the delivery of long-term care service? Home care versus facility care, whether it's assisted living or skilled care, and what do you think the future holds in those different types of places where individuals can live? That's a a great question that, again, comes up all the time. Mm -hmm. Personally, I would say even pre-pandemic through the end of 2019, of the new claims coming in, and we've paid 330,000 claims over 30 or 40 years, and we have about 45,000 existing claims. But today, almost 80% of the claims occur in the home. The policyholder wants their care in the home versus a facility. I do think with COVID-19, the pandemic, the challenges, particularly in the Northeast with COVID deaths and all the publicity around that, that there is even more of a short-term friend for people to want to claim in the home and be cared for in the home. I think we'll see that continue. However, particularly for severe dementia claims, you know, claims that occur because uh, an individual has become disabled with Alzheimer's. At some point, when it becomes 24 7, 365, it's impractical to care. To stay at home. And that's when you see people moving into assisted living facilities or nursing homes. The other thing I would say is it's a very hard job to provide care. My mother was disabled for almost a decade couldn't do any of the activities of daily living. And I had two oh. sisters uh, who took, took care of her. And so I, I saw how hard that job is. Mm-hmm. And of course, my mother wasn't happy with her situation. So she wasn't the nicest patient, if you will. And so it's a very hard job. And, and I believe that we need to pay caregivers whoever they are, but the paid caregivers I'm talking about, you know, what what is the right living wage or salary or compensation that recognizes how hard the job is, emotionally and physically it's hard, and that it's really important for quality of care to our aging Americans who are disabled, 
in the past, because the pay has been so low and most of the time minimum wage, and it used to be, you know, the federal minimum wage is seven and a quarter, a number of states are moving to 15 or more. And I do think that caregiving, what you can earn in that profession needs to be at a level where you can live, raise a family, live comfortably, so that you are able to stay in the industry as a care provider, because there's so much turnover, mostly because they're low paying jobs, it's hard work, and they find other opportunities. And so they leave. So that has, if you look at our current study, the cost of home care, caregiving by the hour has gone up significantly. And I think that was a recognition by many states, particularly the large states that have a lot of people where they were moving from, you know, minimum wage of a little over seven to double digit and a a lot of Mm -hmm. 15. Mm -hmm. Those increases will be one time, bring people up to, you know, 15 is probably not quite enough, but bring it up to a level where the per hour rate you receive, you can live off that. It's a good paying job, recognizing the importance of it. I think we're going to see a need for whether it's government support or just within the industry, the private sector, to make sure that we're recruiting and training, developing excellent caregivers who are you know, high quality caregivers and recognizing the challenge and giving this care to people, but rewarding them appropriately. So I think in a lot of states, including Virginia, where I am, we don't pay K through 12 teachers enough. And I would say for sure, we don't pay caregivers. But the negative of that is it will, for the foreseeable future, until we get the caregiving remuneration at where it should be, that it will mean that the cost for the care, wherever it is, in the home, assisted living or nursing homes, will continue to go up. Yeah. Uh, and that obviously is, is going to be a big challenge. Yeah, agreed. And Tom, what are your thoughts on public long-term care programs like the one in Washington State and discussions that are ongoing in California? Can private insurance work with these programs? You know, in many cases, there's conversations about a public-private partnership. How do you see that playing out? Sure. Well, the first thing I would say, Noel, is like Nehu, and you worked with us back in the 2006 timeframe on the partnership policies. I'm a big believer that there has to be private and public sector involvement that we need to work together and, and need to work with the medical insurance companies, the United, Aetna now CVS, Signic, Anthem, the Blues, where we can help coordinate care. I think there's an overlap between Medicare, Medicare Advantage, and long-term care and trying mm-hmm. to make chronic care and acute care work better together. But the, the private sector, particularly now with, with very few insurance companies willing to be in the financing end of long-term care, we need to make changes to make the private sector more robust, more competitive. I do think you'd much rather have 100 insurers competing and innovating than, than 10. Uh, but the one thing that when I, when I look at our 330,000 claims, and if you look at the average cost of claims in the, in the country, around 250,000, there's a PricewaterhouseCoopers study, PwC study, done a few years ago that said 250,000 would cover about 75, 80% of the cost. That leaves 20 to 25%. That would be above 250,000. 
those are severe dementia, Alzheimer's claims, and we've paid well over a million dollars on some of those. So in order to keep the cost for the 75, 80% of the claims reasonable in a private policy, Affordable. Mm-hmm. I think a good way to do it would be to have some amount of coverage provided by the private sector, and then the balance, by whether it's the state, Washington, California. Tom Swazi, who is a congressman in New York State, Long Island, he's actually running for governor. But Tom has the WISH Act, and we've worked with, mm-hmm. with Tom for a number of years. And his concept is similar, where he's saying, depending on your income, you're responsible for the first number of months or years of coverage. And then beyond that, the government will kick in, and that will be funded by a broad payroll tax, which is the case in Washington. I like that concept because, again, I think if you have individuals either in their own savings or with a private policy covering, let's call it the average claim level, and then leaving to a broad-based tax that the government could bring for catastrophe coverage, at the end of the day, Medicaid is going to pay all the claims if these public-private partnerships don't work out. So I'm in favor of that. On the Washington, I certainly supported that. I thought that was a good idea. The challenge is that's first dollar coverage, and you have to wait a certain period of time as you pay in. But because it's first dollar, and again, they're trying to keep the payroll tax at 0.58% of your income, but the max pays is 36000 And so, as I said, you know, that 36,000 won't even cover a year for in-home care. It's more like 50 to 60,000. And then obviously, if you have the severe dementia diseases and you have to be in a facility, it's over 100,000. So it, it covers three months. So I think it's a good program. It's struggling because the consumers in Washington are complaining about the payroll tax. My own view is that... <laughs> which would make it even worse is the payroll tax. If you're going to cover first dollar, whether it's a state, Washington, California, or the federal government, the payroll tax has to be a lot higher than what they're doing. And therefore, I think it's more efficient for the government to try to put more on the individual, the family, private resources, and then cover the severe cases. And like in Congressman Swazi's bill, He also provides that if you're at the lower income, lower even into the mid, then you only have to cover a few months of care up to a year, and then the the government program kicks in. So it's a very progressive idea that he has. And I think you could have a certain amount of coverage provided by the individual, but based on their income. So people with more means have to cover a longer period of time on their own before the government program kicks in. I think that would mean the additional payroll tax it's still going to be large. And the Washington case shows that, but it it will keep it down. So that's my view. But I'm also, you know, it's possible that you could have the government provide the first dollar. I think it's much more expensive and insurers cover the severe risk. So it could go either way. But I think in the end, there aren't enough private insurers to cover everybody, even if you're a private advocate. And the public programs, you know, we have a whatever the deficit is these days, almost 30 trillion. We know Medicare, Medicaid, the VA administration, the health plan, they're already underfunded. And that's before the 76 million baby boomers Mm -hmm. are in their peak claim years. It's a huge challenge. And 
one of the things, again, I like being at Genworth and focusing on this area is it's a mammoth societal problem. We need to help the baby boomers out. I think you probably know that the average or median 401k balance for the baby boomers, even the 50 to 65, is, is less than 150,000. And so again, if you have a severe disability, long-term care, you're going to use all of your savings just for that, let alone to, to live off of. And with companies no longer offering defined benefit programs and many of the boomers are going to be dependent on small 401k savings and social security to live in retirement in general, we're going to really have to figure out the best way to cover the people we have to cover, which are you know tens of millions with a reasonable high quality as affordable for individuals or the government taxpayers as we can make. Right. So Tom, you've already talked about applying some of the learnings from the legacy long-term care books and what the future holds for Genworth. I think all of us know that the middle market, Americans in the middle market are really the ones who need long-term care insurance and it's hard to find those individual plans that they can afford. Can you speak to that and and maybe some information about Genworth's next steps and your next offerings? So our first product, which we're working on right now, talking to the regulators and the rating agencies and other stakeholders, it recognizes that affordability is an issue. So the maximum coverage that you can purchase is 250000 Again, we set that at 250000 going back to that PwC study. Right. That would cover 70 or 75% of the claims. So it's, it's significant coverage, but by limiting that, we can keep the premiums to at 3000 or below, depending on your age, et cetera. We're using conservative assumptions. So we assume over the lifetime, we only earn 3.25% on the premiums we collect. You know, I would say 18 months ago, that looked like even that may be a stretch. Now it looks like it's, it's more reasonable given the <laughs> yeah. rise in interest rate. But I, I think that could hold. We're, we're assuming almost no lapses. Uh, you know, our four-year right. experiences, our lapse rate was less than 1%. So we're assuming the lapse rate is half a percent. And when we all started, there were no LTC claims. We've had the most by far, 330,000 mm-hmm. paid claims, about 23 yeah. million. So we're using our latest mortality. And we also assume that if you claim, you're going to use your full amount of coverage. So we take benefit utilization risk off the table. So I think there is a very good chance that those assumptions are conservative enough to be good for many years, would be my current view. However, I also know that in 30 to 40 years, I won't be leading Genworth, but the world may look very different. And you know, what do you earn on the premiums could be a lot different. Claim costs could be different. We're starting with conservative pricing assumptions. We think there's a reasonable chance they could hold. Will they hold for 30 or 40 years? I think that's impossible to determine. Right. So every year with all the states that we do business in, we'll say, here's another year of experience. And based on that, we think those assumptions are still money good and no change. And we hope that's the case. But if something is different, we determine that three and a quarter was too high a rate and it needs to be lower, we change it. But by doing it early enough, the amount of increase will be much smaller. I I don't believe there's a possibility that an increase, if you do it that way, would be more than low single digits. And again, coming back to, and Noel, you've, you've said you've talked to a lot of policyholders, but 
I've talked to hundreds over the last several years, and they're saying, look, these triple digit increases are a problem. And we all understand that. But yeah, if you had done a few percent a few times along the way, or we'd be fine with that. And so I think we're trying to, to get to that. But because of the capitation at 250000 we're not taking the risk that we're going to pay, as we've done in, in the legacy policies, well more than a million dollars. I mean, if you're paying those claims, then you have to raise everybody's premiums to, right. to cover that. We're saying there probably needs to be a broader, maybe public way to, to solve that problem. But one of the negatives of that product is when you assume three and a quarter percent investment return, that means you're compounding those premiums over 30 or 40 years at three and a quarter. And so the economic value of the policy is lower. So one of our future products will be where we're not going to guarantee the full benefit pool, but we're going to allow you, you decide the premium you want to invest. And kind of like with a variable annuity chassis, you decide, and we'll have partnerships with mutual fund companies or whatever, you decide how to allocate the premium. And again, if you're like most people, you buy the policy 55 to 60, you don't claim into your 80s over that 25-year period, putting more of the premiums in equity as a percentage would mean that the compound returns would be higher over 25, 30 years without a lot of risk given that the duration of the investment. And so your benefit pool in your peak claim years will be much bigger than what we could provide if we fully guarantee it. So I think there'll be a mm, lot of those kinds of options where the risk sharing between the insured and the insurance company can vary. And you know, the more risk we take, then the higher the premium. But right. if, if we're not taking a lot of risk and you're bearing it, but in reality, you're really not because it's just being invested better. It's a better outcome. We can offer that product on a fully guaranteed basis because regulators basically don't allow insurance companies to invest more than 7 or 10% of the premiums and equities. They, they prohibit that by how they do the reserve and capital calculations that you need. So we are working with regulators to say, you know, if, if this is a 30-year duration, it would be better for us to invest the premiums on behalf of the clients more in equities because today it's less than 10%. I don't think that's likely to happen anytime soon. And so that's why the thought would be to put it in a separate account. So it's your account. You invest it how you want. We'll service the policy, pay the claims, get you into the right caregiving environment, all the things we would do on a more traditional policy. Your benefit pool and your peak claim years will be higher because the returns will have been better. And also this particular product would be a hybrid because if you never have an LTC claim, the benefit pool you're building, you could use that as a retirement income pool and or if you donate it for that, you could pay it, you know, it could become a death benefit for your beneficiaries. I, I think there's support at the federal level in taxation. They like that concept because it kind of kills a couple birds with one stone in that people are preparing for future long-term care needs. So they won't be as reliant on Medicaid. And two, they're also saving and, and more like strategic asset allocation and equities and bonds. And if they don't become disabled, they can use it as retirement income. And we all know baby boomers haven't saved enough and it will help the next generation, I think in particular. So I think you'll see a number of innovations 
that, that all have as the common goal to balance the risk sharing between policyholders and insurers to keep the costs down, but also give the policyholder a significant benefit if they do become disabled as they age. And then beyond the insurance aspect, there's a whole variety of advice and consulting that we're going to do. We know today less than 10% of the age-eligible people own a long-term care policy. Even if we were successful and the industry doubles that to 20%, means 80% don't, but two-thirds of those 80% when they reach 65 and older are going to have a disability. And so for 330,000 times, we've helped figure out through our policyholders what the right care plan is and, and try to help them figure that out. So whether they have a policy or not, we're still willing to do that. And one of the concepts that was put into the medical insurance space, as you know, in the 1980s, we were doing that at Aetna in the 80s, was building a preferred provider network where, again, the view would be we deal with 90,000 LTC providers now, in-home care providers, assisted living, nursing homes. But the thought would be, look at those 90,000. Who are the best when you balance quality and cost and put them in our preferred network? Because we're referring our million legacy policyholders to them, new policyholders that will write, plus these fee-for-service customers will negotiate a discount. And it could be 10 to 20% is kind of normal. If you're paying 5000 a month for in-home care or 10000 a month in a facility, if you give a 10 or 20% discount, that's real value to the consumers. And then we would charge the consumers a fraction of the discount. So we do all the work, consult them, get them in the best preferred facilities that are in our network. What they pay us, what they pay to the caregiver is actually lower than if they did all the work on themselves. So I think there's a another big opportunity. So we're looking at insurance coverage, but also helping individuals and their families, even if they don't have insurance, figure out what's the best place for care in the home facility in your community. You know, we'll do a review. And so we will not only refer you to preferred providers who we think based on some combination of quality and cost are really good in your particular area, wherever you live. Yeah, that's fascinating. You've had so much experience with that in the past, you know, with care, the, you know, the concierge care that you provided to the clients that you have. Oh, I think that's fascinating. Yep. And, you know, just I'm thrilled that we're getting more products in the market and then giving those clients the choices. You want a traditional plan? You want a hybrid plan? The more choices that we can provide and the more carriers that we can offer that, the better it is for the whole market, I think. No, no so that's fascinating. That. Genworth and Nehu successfully expanded LTC partnerships back in 2006 through the Deficit Reduction Act. How is Genworth involved with industry associations like Nehu? And what should we be doing together in the future to expand private sector LTC solutions? No, I, I think trade associations like Nehu and the others are very, very important. And here's why. So whenever I speak, yeah, I've got you know reasonable experience, sort of, but it's hard for whether it's a regulator, a individual, an employer. We want to offer some of these plans at the employer uh, or other stakeholders. There's always a suspicion that yeah, but he's the CEO of Genworth, so he has Genworth's interest at the top, and so we have to discount what he's saying because it's probably more beneficial to Genworth than to others. 
I, I don't think that's the case, but I do think insurance companies in general do provide valuable products and services, mm-hmm. but we're never going to overcome them. And, and therefore, I think the value of the NAHUs and the trade associations is you can take a broader perspective. You have a lot more stakeholders. I think you have 20,000 members, something like that. And, and you can represent the whole industry, the whole sector. And I think you can be viewed as a fairer arbiter between the different stakeholders, insurance companies, consumers, employers, if it's an employer plan, regulators. Right. And I just think that that's very, very valuable. Uh, we, we often work, try to work with associations like uh, Nehu to, to help get the broader message out. The other thing that I think you can do and you have been doing and given your broad membership is there are still the misnomers that, well, I don't have to really worry about long-term care because you know, when I turn 65, I'll be in Medicare and Medicare covers it. We know that's not the case today. And Medicaid does, but you know, most people you know, would never want themselves or their family member having to rely on Medicaid, given the fact that you have to exhaust your assets. And another potential issue, I think, with some of the public programs like Medicaid, if they're only paying 50% of the actual cost of care and everyone is relying on it, and it's a real problem for the providers. Mm-hmm. So I, I just think you can play an enormous role helping all of the stakeholders fairly balance the different competing views and trying to come up with the best set of solutions. I don't think there'll be one, you know, it, it's definitely not one size fits all, but I don't think any insurance company or the industry itself, just with companies involved, can really be seen by other stakeholders as a fair, reliable source of information. But also, I think you all are well-connected, and I think you can give expert testimony to state regulators, to Congress, if there's a in future ask for what should the payroll tax be if we're going to fund it, you know, how much should we rely on the private sector versus the public? You all can, because of your breath, can provide a lot of expert advice and also a more neutral advice. And that's incredibly important to Mm -hmm. us. And that's why we do want to work with a lot of different players like yourselves that are focused in the healthcare and long-term care space. I I think it can be helpful. And also you, you work with healthcare providers as well as LTC. And as I said, I do think right now there's this divide most medical insurers don't do long-term care and vice versa. So there's a gap. Whereas I think if we work together as partners, we can provide a better holistic solution that involves both the medical coverage, the hospital coverage, but also the custodial caregiving coverage. And again, I think that because your members come from all areas of healthcare, you can really help put the different parties together. And that's an, another value added, I think, for Nehu, for Janworth and for the industry. Yeah, and, and we're always working hard to educate NAHU members, you know, just on the value of uh, long-term care protection. So we're we're working hard at that. (laughs) And we appreciate that. Well, thank you to both of you. I I think you both asked great questions. The questions that I do hear a lot, I think it's on the minds of different stakeholders. So I I really appreciate that. Yeah. Well, we as an industry really look forward to you coming back. I'll tell you, thanks so much for, for being our guest. It was just really engaging and enlightening. I I learned a lot. Thanks so much for your time. 
It is now time for the NAHU Healthcare Happy Hour Toast of the Week. Tom, who are we toasting to this week? I do want to toast one set of Americans, and that is all the caregivers that we work with, the 90,000 caregivers. Yes. There are people who come into the home, people who you know work in assisted living facilities and nursing homes. As I said, it's a very difficult job. We need to pay them more to recognize the value they contribute. But I do want to congratulate and thank the 400,000 caregivers across the country for all they do for elderly Americans as they age, including my own family members. So toast yeah. to them. Yeah, you're here. Cheers. Thank you for joining us for the NAHU Healthcare Happy Hour, the official podcast of the National Association of Health Underwriters. For more information on NAHU's government affairs efforts or to become a member, visit NAHU.org.